you are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. It has been quite a ride. The long, high-flying stock market has taken quite a plunge. Is your stomach still in your throat? A $2 trillion relief package is meant to shore up the shaky economy. Where'd that confidence go, and how soon can we get it back? We talked to Hawaii economist Paul Brubaker of TZ Economics about surviving the COVID-19 crisis as we work through issues tied to public health and our economic health. We're trying to buy some time to get better testing in place uh, to develop antiviral drugs and ultimately to develop vaccination. And the real challenge for Hawaii, now that it's here, I mean, it, you kind of see it coming and we probably should have jumped on some of these interventions earlier, but here we are, this is what we've got going. It looks like it's starting to take hold. And then we're going to have to very quickly pivot to a discussion about how we normalize the economy, how we go back to something, you know, a semblance of the way the economy was working just a month ago. I mean, I mean, it's amazing how fast uh, this has happened. You don't want things to drag on so long that people are unwilling to cooperate. I mean, it's we're, we're talking about collective action on a scale that nobody's really seen ever before, except in wartime. You know, you, you, you don't want things to drag on so long that they, you know, they get cabin fever and they get antsy and they, they stop adhering to the guidelines. This is why leadership is so important, why clarity about what the plan is from this point forward will be important, or, you know, once the plan is developed. And each place is going to be a little different. Obviously, Hawaii has certain advantages, but of course, we depend on mobility and air transportation in particular. And the sooner we can figure out a protocol to reestablish that kind of mobility, the sooner we can get economic activity uh, back up and running. Right, and we've just seen, you know, all these major resorts shut down. We've seen the airlines pull back as visitors stop coming. Yeah, that's the unfortunate but necessary, um, most draconian of the interventions from Hawaii's standpoint, uh, because so much of the economy is dependent. I mean, that's the life, tourism is the lifeblood of the Hawaii economy. I'm not making an argument for some other industry. If some other industry were going to be as important, then it would have just been there. But um, it is what it is. So, yes, that's, we have to endure that and then, as I say, figure out some way to, uh, you know, restore the activity. Quarantines, which are already in place uh, for those persons who are arriving, there's still going to be some movement because, you know, for example, medical professionals need to move around. Disaster management people probably need to move around. But, you know, what's the, what's the next step? What do you do after quarantine protocols? That's going to be the real challenge. I guess for the next month anyway, things are going to be tough. It's going to be really hard on a large part of the community. And, and I think there's a lot of people that were sort of in the in-between, right? If you're, if you're working in food service, if you're working in accommodation, basically anything in the tourism complex, you know, a lot of people have had to go home. And unfortunately for a lot of small businesses, which may fall into a, you know, a gap in the sense of the federal policy intervention that was just adopted, great if you're on a payroll, but if you're a really small business, don't have any employees, then what do you do? And so I think there's going to be a lot of, a lot more businesses and a lot more individuals that are find themselves in kind of a gray area. They, but again, the relief bill is really there to, to bridge until the point where we can develop the strategy for normalization. And it has to be rooted in, you know, health conditions. It also has to be engineered so that, you know, the safety of the population is preserved as we try to build back the economic infrastructure. The good news, if there is any, is that somewhere out there at the end of this is probably a vaccine. Sometime before that, there's probably a semblance of herd immunity and, and you know as soon as a couple months from now if you're watching things unfold in China and in Asia if your containment and mitigation efforts have been robust you're able to begin finding your way back to economic normalcy and that I, I think we could have here in Hawaii we could have learned a lot watching China South Korea Hong Kong and Singapore Particularly, there are lessons from all of them to be learned, both in terms of mistakes and, and successes. You know, one of them is have 
test, test, and test some more, test five times as many people as you think you need to per capita. And now the tracking question, that's going to be a huge one here. Then we'll move on to building a model for, for normalization. You'll, you'll have to worry about second waves of subsequent waves of, of the infection. And So on one hand, you've got the public health issue and the confidence, and there's also the economic health and, you know, how well we bounce back. I think it's important to remember if you're, if you're, Benchmarking to the Great Depression of the 1930s, that went on for three years. So it, it turns out in this case, three years from now, you'll probably have been vaccinated if you didn't already survive exposure. I mean, that's that's why that herd immunity uh, mm-hmm. point uh, was, you know, one to bring into the discussion. Is that you, get, you, you begin to approach something like that uh, over time. But ideally, right, you don't want to have to wait that long if possible. Within the next six months to a year, is going to be trying to figure out, you know, how to restart as much of the economic activity that currently is being foregone. And that's going to take creativity. As I say, I think there's a technological element to it for, you know, tracking, tracing, monitoring. Uh, I, the technology is already there. It's a little surprising to hear government officials talk about, oh, we need to code some app because I know people have an app, like the ones they're thinking about. But those technologies can help us. And then I think, as I suggested earlier, at least some lines of business are going to find themselves doing things differently, using technology to do things differently uh, in a way that either sustains or revives business, but in a manner that's somewhat different from from what it was before. Dining out, a huge thing before this all happened, and about half of all meals, I think something like that, were actually eaten out, which meant that some people ate at home all the time and other people ate out all the time. But... Now everybody's eating at home, and of course that means that the food distribution system has had to switch. And there's, you go to the, the supermarket and, and some of the open markets that people are trying to revive, and uh, the you know merchandise mix is a little different from what you're accustomed to. You know, I used to do a lot of speaking on the business function circuit. You know, what, once or twice a month, and uh, I've I've done three Zoom webinars in the last week. <laughs> All of a sudden. We're all doing Zoom, and I'm thinking, and everybody I've worked on this with, we're all thinking, why were we going to go have a luncheon somewhere, you know, and spending too much money? We could have just gone online. So, you know, the way we do business in a lot of areas will, will change. What's just happened is an impetus to use technology that was already there and the capability that was latent in the technology uh, to exploit opportunities that allow us, in the, in the first instance, to get back to business, but maybe even to do business more efficiently, do it better, faster, and cheaper. Uh, if there's a lesson to be learned at this point is that everything is worse than you think it might be, and you've got to go way bigger, and you got to go way longer than you thought. Stop doing all the little, you know, baby step type stuff. Go big, go long. Then you won't be surprised when it happens. That was part of a conversation we had this morning with Paul Brubaker of TZ Economics. We were talking about retooling as we get through this unprecedented time. And we now look around to Europe with the BBC as it continues to update us with the latest with COVID-19 on the other side of the globe. This is the Coronavirus Global Update at 17 hours GMT on Monday the 30th of March. I'm Oliver Conway with the latest news on the pandemic. Spain now has more coronavirus cases than China, but the Spanish foreign minister says the outbreak there appears to be slowing. Nurses in New York say they are overwhelmed by the epidemic and how motor racing engineers helped build a new device to assist breathing. Spain has now joined Italy and the US in overtaking China's total number of infections, though the Spanish authorities are hopeful the numbers could soon start to fall. New, tougher control measures have come into force, as Guy Hedgeco reports. Here on the streets of Madrid, it's even quieter than it has been for the last two weeks. A national lockdown, which has been in place for that time, has today been tightened further. All non-essential professionals who had been able to travel to their place of work must now stay at home. The Foreign Minister, Arancha González, has told the BBC that the virus's upward curve seems to be flattening out. Daily infection rates are dropping. However, with another 812 people dying of coronavirus in the last 24 hours, Spain's healthcare services are struggling. New York remains the epicentre of the pandemic in the US, where more than 2,500 people have died. 
This emergency department nurse who wants to remain anonymous says they are overwhelmed. Our emergency room is completely COVID and we're short staffed. We're running out of basic supplies because all of our patients are requiring so much. I feel like we've been hit harder and we've been hit first. We have not even experienced the worst and the biggest wave of patients. We're just getting started. A U.S. Navy hospital ship has now arrived in New York to provide extra help. Japan has reported a surge in COVID-19 infections amid fears that a lack of widespread testing has allowed the virus to spread undetected. Tokyo has recorded its highest number of new cases with 68. Rupert Wingfield-Hayes reports. Across Japan, coronavirus infections have doubled in the last 10 days. The city's parks have now been shut and people have been urged not to go to pubs and restaurants at night. But apart from that, life in Tokyo remains remarkably normal, with shops and offices open and the city's notoriously crowded metro system still jammed with commuters. Meanwhile, a new date has been announced for the Tokyo Olympics. The Summer Games will take place from July the 23rd until August the 8th, 2021, a delay of a year. China, where the virus originated, says it's been through the worst and is now recovering. President Xi Jinping has called on Chinese firms to resume activity to try to revive the economy. So is life getting back to normal? Our correspondent Stephen McDonnell is in Beijing. Still a long way from normal, but every day there are little bits of more normality returning, if I could put it to you that way. I mean, still, for example, if you go into any cafe, any shopping centre or what have you, you still have to have your temperature checked, you still have to put your name down, put your phone number down, things like that. So it's just a, a slow return to normal, if you like, but uh, we're not there yet. Now to the impact on the global economy and with billions of people ordered to avoid non-essential travel, demand for crude oil has plummeted. As a result, oil prices have fallen to their lowest level in almost 20 years. Andrew Walker reports. The price of crude oil is now well below half the level it was as recently as January. The massive decline in global travel, especially though not only by air, has fed through to the price of oil, which accounts for more than 90% of transport fuel. Traders are constantly having to adjust their expectations about how long the situation will last. People from all sorts of technical and medical backgrounds are trying to design and build equipment to help save lives. Now, a modified breathing aid that may help keep coronavirus patients out of intensive care units has been created in less than a week by scientists and engineers in Britain, working with a Formula One motor racing team. Professor Rebecca Shipley is head of the team at University College London. The main reason for patients with COVID-19 requiring hospital admission is respiratory failure. So they need some help to get oxygen from their lungs to their bloodstream. So what we've done is understand that there's a need for a kind of interim measure which can hopefully prevent people from progressing to full mechanical ventilation. And this is through one of these devices. It's essentially a specialised tight-fitting mask or hood where we deliver oxygen under constant pressure. Professor Rebecca Shipley, head of that team at University College London. That's it for this edition. We'll be back in about 12 hours. Thanks for listening to the Coronavirus Global Update. Lots of questions are swirling around the rollout of the federal bailout bill passed by Congress and signed into law by the president on Friday. We spoke to Hawaii Representative Ed Case just hours after its passage. He unpacks what he calls the disaster relief program and also talked about the military's readiness to deal with the coronavirus following reports last week that an aircraft carrier that stopped in Guam has 23 sailors who've tested positive for the virus. 
This is the third major bill that we've passed in the course of the last few weeks. The first one uh, really went primarily to the science of combating COVID, to, to the vaccines, to the test kits, to the medical providers. Some of that went to the small business, but it was mostly about the science. The second one was really about the social safety net, and that tried to shore up worker protections and, and you know, paid sick leave and paid family leave and, and particularly unemployment insurance. But those two bills were just completely, you know, unfinished business, and there was, a, of course, a major, major effort needed on the economic side to really stabilize our, our businesses, our workers, our economic fabric across the country and here in Hawaii. So that was a major advance. It is not going to be enough. I don't think anybody that really has taken a good solid look at this believes that even that amount of incredible resources, which is, which is more than the discretionary spending of our entire country every year, uh, brought to bear on this is going to be enough. We're going to need some further efforts. But this one is a major, major advance, which was on a bipartisan basis. It passed out of the Senate unanimously, out of the House virtually unanimously. The president signed it. It was it and those prior two bills were really primary examples of what you can do when, you, when you're when you united by a crisis and, and you, you cut through all the partisan stuff. So we've got to get it implemented now. That's a huge challenge. To a great extent, uh, the course of COVID-19 is in our hands. Yes, it's here. Yes, of course, it's accelerating now. But the whole purpose right now is to slow that acceleration and to, as we've all gotten used to saying, smooth the curve so that so that our medical facilities and healthcare system can handle those of us that are going to be uh, particularly impacted by this. And and really, you know, we're not going to get rid of COVID, you know, next week or next month. But we can try to get to a point where we manage its presence within our communities in a way that allows us to return to some semblance of normality, uh, uh, both in terms of our own lives and in terms of our economies. And that's where we're trying to get to. And that takes paying, uh, you know, close attention to the the advice of the best uh, science, best medical experts out there. So the the measures we're all having to go through um, are absolutely necessary for us to influence the course of this. Where we don't pay attention to that, and there's examples of this from elsewhere in the world, uh, they just get incredibly slammed, and then it's just far worse uh, than had they tried to pay attention early and often. And I know that there is great concern for the folks out uh, in the trenches, our healthcare workers who are who are battling this, uh, you know, every day in in less than ideal circumstances, with the fear that we won't have enough equipment, enough ventilators, enough protective gear. The folks that are in the healthcare professions, the medical professions, the the people are absolutely on the front lines of this crisis, and and are putting themselves in harm's way every single day to care for, for, for those of us that are particularly impacted by COVID. And they just deserve the most incredible recognition. But they don't, they don't just need recognition. They need, they need equipment to do their job with. And, and, and we got caught flat-footed on this in our country. Uh, we got flat-footed without enough test kits. We got flat-footed with, with not enough ventilators, especially in some parts of our country. We really have to accelerate in those areas. And, and the stimulus bill that we passed has major, major funding for personal protective equipment, for ventilators, for test kits, uh, to get them out and about. President Trump also invoked, invoked the Defense Production Act, which is a federal law that's been around for decades. It's intended to give the, give the president the power to mobilize the private sector to produce and distribute uh, materials that are critical in times of actual war. And of course, uh, this is the functional equivalent of that on many levels. And so he has now fully invoked the Defense Production Act with a specific focus on private sector uh, turning out ventilators as fast as possible. I think that's an entirely appropriate, if not overdue, action by the president. Because of your oversight, you know, with the the military, with our armed forces, uh, a number of these cases are on ships. I think there's a, a, the Roosevelt, I believe, is out in Guam. We saw what happened with the cruise ship. Any thoughts on that, that situation? Well, it's certainly a concern to the military and to all of us. They clearly do work in close quarters, especially on aircraft carriers and submarines and other ships, but but not just at sea. They certainly have a dual role here, which they are committed to fulfilling. Uh, the, the, the role is to keep their folks safe and to maintain military readiness. They, they do have the resources uh, to do that. We have, I think it's 400,000 plus active service members in the Indo-PACOM region. So that's, the, that's, the, that's our, our unified command that is headquartered right here in Hawaii, along with all of our individual military commands out in the Pacific and Asia, from, from our Navy to our Marines to our Army, Air Force, all here. And so we're really at the epicenter of that in many, many ways in terms of, and, and I believe that they uh, have a good handle on it. Um, they are going through the same basic 
analysis, the same basic procedures that, uh, you know, we are in the, in the civilian community. They are following CDC guidelines. They are, they are testing widely uh, where advised by CDC. They are conducting incredibly um, intensive cleaning efforts at their facilities to keep them clean. Of course, you know, by the nature of them being the military, they're a little bit more capable of of imposing order on on their world. And I think that they are trying very, very hard. I don't have any questions about the military's commitment to or capability to deal with this. They've got, you know, the Roosevelt is a good example. This is, you know, one of our great aircraft carriers out in the Pacific had a couple of sailors that test positive for COVID. Uh, They were prepared. As soon as this came up, they knew that they had to mobilize uh, COVID capability, testing capability and treatment capabilities to their ships. They did it to the Roosevelt. They caught this one, it looks like, pretty early. They are uh, in port on a previously scheduled uh, port stop for supplies and fuel, uh, but they are completely, uh, we've been in touch with uh, Pacific uh, Fleet uh, Command right here about that. They have all of the procedures in place that they need. They are quarantining uh, those sailors that are either tested positive or have been around people that have tested positive or who in it, and who or who are in essential uh, you know, watch stations. They are testing widely. They are anybody that does have it. They're able to go to the U- U.S. Naval Hospital Guam, and they have completely disallowed any port calls. So um, the, the the farthest anybody on board can can get is the pier, and nobody from Guam can get on that pier. So they have they have complete segregation. I guess it's it's just kind of sobering because of the vast responsibility that Pacific Fleet has. You know, the military is very very good about preparing for contingencies, and I and I believe they have some preparations for this kind of a contingency, which of course could have been imagined. And movies have been done about it, and books have been done about it. So obviously, it's something that we can we can we can project. And so I think that they. We're farther along in terms of being prepared for the contingency than perhaps the civilian population. But again, I think the the, the scope and speed of, of the spread of COVID-19 has been unexpected for many. Anything else you want to underscore? You know, the bill itself, uh, to me, there's four major parts of this $2.2 trillion uh, disaster, economic disaster recovery bill that we just uh, passed into law. The first area is assistance to our businesses overall, somewhere in the range of $500 billion going to the business world, contingent on using that money to keep employees on the payroll. I think it was a broad sense in Congress that we, we didn't want to just throw money at the businesses and let them decide how to spend it, that we needed to make sure it got to where the greatest need was, which was to maintain employment, maintain health care benefits, maintain other benefits that, that arise from employment. And so that is, that's critical Also, of course, the travel and tourism and our airline industry here, which have been, as we all know, especially hard hit, that money is uh, available to them. There's a second bucket that is specific to small business, which is critical to Hawaii because we have one of the highest prorata percentages of small business in the entire country, well up into the high 90s of our businesses, our small businesses. And we're talking about very small businesses, so, you know, sole proprietorships mom-and-pop operations, you know, five employees across the board. And um, there's about $377 billion in this bill to target to small business itself. The third area is unemployment benefits. That is a critical need because we've seen um, our unemployment claims uh, skyrocket, of course, in the last couple of weeks. And I think it's about 15 times what it was now uh, three weeks ago and climbing. And uh, the state doesn't have the resources to handle that forever. And so the feds are stepping into the states and saying, no, we're going to supplement your unemployment so that people that do lose their jobs or are downsized can maintain some level of, of comparable wage. Then the last part I would like to note is, is, um, is, is back to our medical providers. We talked earlier about how we need to help them. So this bill tries to fund major mobilization and distribution of uh, PPE, personal protective equipment, as well as help our our hospitals. So, you know, those are the areas that we're trying to target. Uh, We're trying to get this uh, money and resources to to our workers, to our families, families, to our small businesses, to our communities, so that we can really tide this through while we bend the trajectory of of COVID-19 as a public health emergency back to where we can start to recover, as I said, some semblance of stability and normalcy in our our economic lives. That was Hawaii Representative Ed Case talking about the $2 trillion bailout bill passed Friday and the rising number of COVID cases throughout the Pacific Fleet, including a nuclear carrier now docked in Guam.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Sutter Health Kahi Mohala, serving families, children, and adolescents with behavioral health services since 1983, dedicated to providing treatment for healing and hope. Sutter Health Kahi Mohala. HPR brings you vital information from the islands and around the world. It brings you music that enriches and uplifts. And it keeps you company, providing moments of levity and joy along with the news. Whatever your day looks like, stay connected at home with your smart speaker. It's easy. Just say Play KHPR for HPR 1 or Play KIPO for HPR 2. Honolulu Civil Beat's reality check segment today looks at the suspension of open government laws. Reporter Nick Ruby joins us this morning from our nation's capital. Hi there, Nick. Hi, Catherine. Thank you so much for having me on. Hey, so is it eerily strange there in Washington, D.C., like it is here? Um, I would have to say yes. It's a lot easier to drive around the city um, than it used to be. Uh, the weather's getting a little bit nicer, so you see a lot of people out on the sidewalks, but they're doing their best to avoid each other, uh, sometimes crossing the street if they happen to be crossing paths, but probably uh, not as eerie as it might be out there um, with uh, a lot of the tourists staying home or going home, I can imagine. Yeah, I mean, you know, we are in uh, uncharted uh, territory here, and uh, you have a story about how the government has suspended some of our open, uh, open government laws. Right. Well, this is uh, a decision that uh, Hawaii Governor David Ige made early on um, during his response to the COVID-19 and coronavirus pandemic. And it was part of a proclamation in which he decided to suspend the open meetings and public records law for the state of Hawaii. Um, Now, for the open meetings law, the idea is that, you know, government officials need to act quickly and be nimble. Uh, in a crisis situation, which that kind of makes sense, right? You don't need to follow the law to sort of post a meeting six days in advance of having a bunch of people get together in a room and decide how to react. Um, so in, in that sense, that that uh, seemed to follow along with what a lot of what's happening in a lot of other states. Now, uh, the governor also suspended the state's public records law which is a bit extreme. Um, He didn't really explain the need for uh, suspending the records law, which of course allows citizens and reporters and journalists uh, to get access to government documents that help to sort of illuminate and explain what the government's doing and why it's doing it. Um, That's of course incredibly important during a crisis situation. Now, no other state uh, had, or, or no other governor had actually gone to that length anywhere else in the country. Um, And so that's where Ige and Hawaii sort of stand alone as having some of the most uh, anti-transparency measures put in place during this pandemic. Well, it was funny because on Friday, I was checking with the Department of Health about, hey, can't you guys give us more information now that we have more cases, uh, positive cases as to, you know, where these people live or work? I mean, I can understand the privacy issues when we just had a couple, but, you know, they said they're working on it. Sure. And, and I mean, that's sort of one of the issues that we're all facing, right? There's a lot of fear and anxiety in this moment for members of the public. And they're trying to make sure that they have all the information they need to sort of maybe not panic uh, in, uh, as, as governments are responding to, to this global crisis. And when the government isn't being upfront and providing information, I think that sort of only heightens that anxiety among some folks. I think when we're talking about um, getting access to uh, where certain people might live, at least in in, in a sense of people who have tested positive for this, I think that there are ways for the government to really go about releasing that information without infringing on the privacy of those individuals, such as saying, you know, within this neighborhood, or, you know, maybe, maybe there were 10 people in Kailua uh, who got sick within this vicinity, and it doesn't sort of infringe upon those privacy rights that those individuals might have. So what are the watchdogs uh, saying? Well, the watchdogs, uh, both in Hawaii and everywhere else, says that what Governor Ige did, um, again, is the most extreme example uh, anywhere in the country of taking an anti 
transparency sort of stance during this crisis. I think um, if you look to what uh, Brian Black of the Civil Beat Law Center uh, for the Public Interest had to say in a letter to the governor, he said, keeping Hawaii's electorate in the dark about government decisions for two months or longer is unconscionable. Um, he also said that the governor's governor's actions were, quote, recklessly overbroad um, and said that in a crisis, we must reaffirm, not abandon our most basic democratic principles. Um, and he, he also said that when government uh, when government boldly declares that it will hide information and conceal decision making, rumor, innuendo and special interests thrive while democracy withers. And again, this really gets back to the idea of how do we sort of make sure that what our government officials in Hawaii are doing um, is in the best interest of the public if we can't actually check on them and, and, and ensure that this is possible. Now, this is not to say that they need to drop everything to respond to a Public Records Act request when somebody submits one to the government, right? I think everybody understands that, um, that this is a crisis situation. But at the same time, Hawaii does allow for two weeks for government officials to get back to people who are requesting records, and they can extend that by another two weeks if they want to. That's already written into our law. Now, getting rid of the law altogether goes a little bit beyond that. That says that they don't have to respond at all. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll see how uh, this all gets resolved, but we appreciate the story, Nick. All right, thanks a lot for having me on. All right, that was Civil Beat reporter Nick Groovy reporting from Washington, D.C. with today's Reality Check. To read more about that, go to civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, now offering distance EMBA in travel industry management starting this fall. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. Earlier this month, we heard assurances from the Harbor Users Group that shipping is not being disrupted. Today, we hear from Hawaii Energy, formerly known as Chevron, about the situation with our fuel supplies. Albert Chi is vice president of communications for the company. He tells us people shouldn't worry. There is ample supply. So with the combination of lack of uh, visitor arrivals and the fact that, as you just pointed out, people have been ordered to stay home, we, we do see the, the fall in demand for um, our fuels. Uh, right now, that fall is anywhere between 11 to 15 percent on average. I will tell you, it's a little more on the big island, and I think that's just a function of people actually commute more uh, longer distances. And so when they're told to stay home, you're probably going to see a more dramatic fall in the and the actual usage. What about then the supply? What can you tell our listeners about the supply of fuel? People of Hawaii should not worry about the supply of fuel. Uh, there's ample fuel here in the islands. I can tell you on behalf of Island Energy, which is the exclusive licensee of the Texco brand, you know, in 2018, at the end of the year, we actually closed our refinery. That was, you know, in the news. But through 2019, what we've done is a lot of investment to increase our ability to store fuel. So we're in actually a much better position today from actual hard assets on the ground to hold more fuel. Then when you take that fall in demand in consideration, we typically keep anywhere from 10 to 14 days of supply at our outer island terminals, more on Oahu. That supply has gone to more like two to three weeks because people are just using less of it. So we're, we're in a good position. Again, um, the supply is uninterrupted. There's a lot of product that we can source on the Pacific Rim to continue to bring product into the islands. We have a lot on the ground to begin with, even more so because of our investments. I would urge people just to go about their business. Our stations remain open. Uh, we are considered essential services. So our stations, our sea stores all remain open to serve the motoring public. So this won't be like preparing for a hurricane where you're going to see long lines at the gas pump because people are afraid the power is going to get cut and then the pumps won't work. Well, let's all hope it doesn't uh, get to that. I don't think it will. It doesn't look like. I don't see any signs of that now. But, you know, it's good you mentioned the hurricanes. We're well prepared. I think the whole state is used to being prepared and does a good job of um, 
getting ready and then being cooperative. Of course, these are very different times and nothing like we've ever seen before. But, you know, the inventory, uh, one of the things we do for hurricanes, and we've done this uh, at this time too, we actually push more fuel out to the stations. You know, the stations have underground storage tanks. It represents inventory as well. So we've pushed more fuel out just in case if our delivery trucks get interrupted for some way. In the case of a hurricane, if the roads were not passable, we could not continue to deliver. Of course, if the road's not passable, no one's driving either. But one of the things we do is we push more fuel out to the individual stations just in case there is a disruption. They can actually go longer than they would be able to do otherwise. So they're good to go. They're good to go. And, you know, our retailers have been very cooperative. I can't thank them enough. You know, we have 57 stations statewide on all islands. Uh, we do transact through a lot of business uh, retail partners, franchisees. They've all been great um, to, you know, everybody's been scrambling. I'm sure we're no different than everybody else, but everybody has, for the most part, scrambled well, and the spirit of cooperation is very good. We're blessed with that. I think that's the Aloha spirit. You know, we're, we're doing fine under the circumstances. Now, I have noticed the prices going down. As the global economy cools, right, you first see it. Just five, six weeks ago, the price of a barrel of oil was like in the 50s. Um, it's down in the 20s. And everything kind of hinges off that cost of that raw material. So there's no doubt that with that falling, the the price of the finished product tends to trend with that. Now, you say we have ample storage uh, for our fuel, but maybe our listeners might want to know, you know, isn't there like a regular shipment that comes in from wherever we get our fuel? And and will that affect that pipeline, so to speak, you know, that route? So we don't see any issues at this moment. We actually procure our cargoes that we bring into the state, depending on what product it is, anywhere from 30, 60 to 90 days out. So we usually see a ship coming in every 10 to 14 days. Uh, we've actually had to lengthen that schedule out because the demand has fallen. But we've got, uh, at any given time, we might have a ship in our mooring, which sits two to three miles off of Barbers Point, where the ships come in, dock, unload their cargoes through undersea pipelines and into our facility. While we might have a ship in the mooring at any given time, we've usually got two to three ships on the water heading our way with different cargoes. We don't see any disruption. In fact, the global slowdown has uh, created a glut or an excess amount of product, and there's a lot of ships available, so we don't see any impacts to the supply coming into Hawaii. On the ground here in Hawaii, Island Energy, um, which is the successor to Chevron, our new company is headquartered here, locally managed. Every decision that I and the rest of the leaders of Island Energy make is only about Hawaii. We're not typically concerned about what's happening in other parts offshore, principally focused on Hawaii. We have all the assets in place. We control all the assets from the mooring where the ships tie up all the way to the nozzle and everything in between, product terminals, pipelines, storage facilities, all are assets that we physically own and can control. So we, we're, we're in a really good position to continue to meet the, um, the needs as required as an essential provider. And now can you talk about protocols that you're taking, protocols that have changed in light of all these high-touch surfaces? Because I, I was thinking, oh, gosh, I think I'm, I've got a half a tank, and I was thinking i got to make sure I've got wipes in there so I can wipe down the, the nozzle. You know, we pride ourselves on being customer-driven. And so before COVID-19 was actually identified as a pandemic, when it first started, we instituted what we just referred to an enhanced sanitization and disinfecting program. What that basically means is at our locations that we, that Island Energy operates itself, our staff goes out once every hour and does a thorough wipe down of all the high touch surfaces. So on the dispensers, that's all your keypads, that's all, that's your nozzle, that's all the buttons that you have to push to complete your transaction. They're using a product that is approved by the CDC as effective for uh, coronavirus. In the store, they do the same thing. They wipe down all the high-touch areas, whether that's, again, the keypads that you transact with, the, the cooler doors that you may grab to, to open, the front door that you push to come in, um, the restroom um, handles, everything, the countertops that are high-touch areas get wiped down thoroughly once an hour. Now, with our business partners, we've encouraged them to do the same. We've shared our program with them. 
We're backing them up with supplies that we've been able to procure and store at our warehouse uh, here down in Ivalet. We're asking them to do the best they can. You know, some of them are mom and pop operations, especially on the neighbor islands, but I can tell you everybody has stepped up to address that, not only for the customers, but really first and foremost for the safety of our own employees. They're on the front line and um, they are in a little bit more risk than someone sitting in an office or sitting at home. Okay, so we want to make sure that they're taken care of. We appreciate, you know, the patience of the community. Uh, again, I mentioned earlier, you know, this is a time when everybody really sees what, what is important about Hawaii, the people, and the aloha spirit and the cooperation. I know everybody's going through some difficult times, some more than others, and we just, you know, wish everybody the best. And uh, we'll get through this. And I think we'll be a better community having faced the challenge. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Catherine. Really appreciate the opportunity. That was Albert Chi, Vice President of Communications for Hawaii Energy, formerly known as Chevron. He was giving us a better picture of our fuel supplies during this crisis. We should mention that Par Hawaii, which owns the state's only refinery, said in a news release that its fuel production is uninterrupted and that it continues to distribute product to its 90 retail outlets by a transportation pipeline and barges statewide. HPR's Kuvehi Reishi has been keeping an eye on the uh, community there on the island of Molokai. You may recall that uh, uh, some on that island protested, urging visitors to stay away even before the state pulled a welcome mat in an effort to curb the spread of COVID-19. She joins us live this morning. Hi there. Good morning, Catherine. Yes, Molokai's response uh, is very much a product of being an isolated, rural, small-town uh, community. I spoke uh, to the general manager over at Hotel Molokai, which had closed, one of the first hotels in Hawaii to close. Um, and this is what he had to say about why he decided to close in light of the COVID uh, threat on Molokai. We do live in uh, on Molokai in a very small, close-knit community, yeah? So we, you know, we thought it was in, important to try to protect not only the employees, you know, and their families, but the entire community, you know, from someone bringing that virus here on the island. Right. So on Molokai and Lanai right now, no confirmed COVID-19 cases. Maui County does have 20 confirmed cases almost all on Maui Island, uh, but the Department of Health, uh, the district office on, of, uh, on Maui Island is saying that they expect that number to go up um, because of testing that was done, aggressive testing over the weekend and uh, the later part of last week. So we will see that number go up. Molokai is hoping that is not on uh, their island. But like many across uh, the islands right now, Molokai residents are adapting to the stay-at-home, work-from-home measures. Uh, social distancing practices are um, taking effect on island. Spoke to Kevin Misaki, uh, the owner of one of the grocery stores there in Kaunakakai, one of a, probably a handful on island, about uh, the difficulty in shipping goods to Molokai at this time because they're such a small buyer right now in this sort of um, supply chain that continually dries up as it gets. So goods come from international markets to the United States, to Oahu, and then to Molokai. And so it's really hard for him to get some of uh, the uh, goods that he would normally have. Uh, but basics like toilet paper are there. Things like canned goods, Spam, and Vienna sausage, a little harder to find. Uh, but this threat has really helped to expose some of the vulnerabilities on, uh, of being an isolated rural community. Things like shipping, but also health care. So here we, we cry like babies and we're like, wah, no toilet paper, <laughs> wah, no hand sanitizer, but Molokai has some shortages. They have some shortages, but when it comes to, I guess, the, the normal practice, at least for Misaki's, uh, of holding higher inventory, that's been key for them since the beginning because of specific uh, conditions, you know, becoming uh, like they are now. Uh, but the healthcare system, there one hospital, about 7,400 residents on island. There is a community health center, uh, Molokai Community Health Center, which is trying to support the efforts at the hospital. Uh, but 
uh, that has become a big concern for some residents. I know a uh, Molokai resident, Walter Ritty, who we spoke to, he says he knows that if he gets sick, uh, he would rather fly to Oahu because he doesn't have much confidence in getting the care that he thinks he would need uh, if a COVID outbreak would take place. So here's Ritty uh, making that point. It's just, it's just the way it is. They accepted it. So we all try to stay as healthy as we can. And now we have this pandemic. There's no way the thing hits on Molokai that we're going to have the same kind of care of any other island. So that's why we, we want to take these drastic measures of trying to stop completely the carriers of this, of this disease from coming to Molokai. So really one of the organizers of those protests you mentioned uh, earlier at the Ho'olehua airport. And I think, you know, Governor Ige, Governor David Ige's quarantine uh, order, the mandatory 14 days, is in place. A lot of the concern for uh, folks on Molokai is the inter-island travel, which uh, we hear we are expecting to uh, get additional details on further restrictions um, according to yeah, you, your reporting. Yeah. We're just, it, it's just interesting to see, you know, what's happening. And I know Molokai has been very, historically, very protective um, of the people and the resources, you know, and a little maybe suspicious of outsiders, you know, everything from the, the ferry to, you know, it's just, it, and, you know, just, uh, just, they're very protective, I think, of their community, and rightly so. Right, and I think uh, I, I had just spoken to Representative Linda Coit, uh, who represents Molokai and also rural uh, areas in Maui County, including Lanai and Hana, and she, uh, I think the word she used, it, it, a threat or an outbreak of COVID on island would literally cripple the island's health care infrastructure. Um, right now, a lot, uh, or not a lot, but there are instances of Molokai residents who will fly to Oahu for care, um, either for chemotherapy or surgery, things that aren't um, available on island. And so when we talk about uh, inter-island travel restrictions, Decoit is looking for ways to have exemptions for uh, folks who might need uh, either uh, health care that's not available on island uh, and to exempt them from any sort of restriction to travel inter-island, but also for those who, believe it or not, some on Molokai do fly to Oahu to go shopping at Costco. <laughs> it happens. And so when they think about uh, these inter-island travel restrictions, uh, Decoit is really trying to figure out the best way to add exemptions for residents. Here's Decoit. But they are trying to come up with a solution of what, we re what I recommended and it was basically to use the exemption forms so that we could actually, you'd have to call in or email in, see if you get approval. But you shouldn't be getting on approval if you don't live here on island. So they're gonna work on that. Um, they're afraid that if we completely shut it down, that we might not be able to send people back out uh, to Honolulu if they need to go to doctors. So I think with the exemption forms, we should be able to kind of um, help with this situation. Right. So just to illustrate maybe one last point about uh, what the, the healthcare vulnerabilities or healthcare system vulnerability looks like on Molokai. Um, last year, the doctor shortage uh, was so bad that they were flying in an emergency uh, room doctor on the daily. Wow. Yeah. To fill that that need on island so if uh, demand were to you know once we hit that capacity for the hospital and the healthcare system there um, I think things would get harder for Molokai which is why you're seeing the response that you are right and uh, you know I, I should mention that uh, I was down there at the testing that they were mm -hmm. doing at Kaka'ako uh, Park this weekend and did talk to Scott uh, Miskovich and he had mentioned that uh, I think Premier Medical, they were working with the community and they were actually going to go down to Molokai and start to do some uh, more wide, widespread testing of the residents there. Yes, I know uh, Queen's Health uh, Care System, who had uh, responded to us by email looking for how prepared uh, they are. They had sent in an emailed statement, we have adequate supplies and medicine to handle patients and we are able to provide testing to those needing testing. Um, but I'm assuming we're going to get a lot more in terms of details and a preparedness plan uh, coming out this week. Okay. And then, uh, gosh, you also mentioned that uh, Lanai does not mm -hmm. have any 
uh, positive cases either, right? Not yet. And uh, like I mentioned earlier, Maui County, 20 confirmed cases, but the Department of Health does expect that number to go up when we get uh, test results. Right. And I think uh, we heard earlier in the show, you know, we need to be doing more testing so we get a better handle on just how widespread this disease is in the community. We all know that the, the number of cases will rise uh, as they start to, to do more testing. And, and we anxiously look forward to that uh, rapid response right. test so we can, you know, find out that day as opposed to waiting for, you know, a week or more. Exactly, and I, I think for those on Molokai uh, right now, it's just trying to keep it out. If it is there, I think testing will be a big factor. Right. Okay, well, thanks so much, Kuvei. Mahalo. That was HBR's Kuvei Hirishi giving us an update on Molokai. dialysis units uniquely prepared to handle patients with all different kinds of infections? Has the coronavirus pandemic altered how we manage chronic kidney disease? I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. I'll talk with Dr. Ramona Wong about how to improve your kidney health, whether on dialysis or not. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. And that's a wrap for today, but up tomorrow, we plan to check in on the State Labor Department as it tries to process the record number of jobless claims. Hey, leave us your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217, and tell us your story if you've had an experience uh, and, and problems getting on uh, that website. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or tweet us at HI Conversation. And hey, email works too, talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Find all of our archive shows online. Look under HPR News and Talk for the conversation on hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of Conversation.